You're listening to ReachMD XM160, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to Medical Breakthroughs from Penn Medicine with your host, Northwestern University internist, Dr. Lee Friedman. Bone marrow transplant can be risky for all patients, but especially for those with comorbidities. How are new methods of bone marrow transplantation decreasing the toxicity of this potentially life-saving procedure? Joining us to discuss novel approaches to bone marrow and stem cell transplantation is Dr. David Porter, Professor of Medicine and Director of Stem Cell Transplantation and Immunotherapy at Penn Medicine. Thank you for being with us, Dr. Porter. It's my pleasure. Thank you. I think of bone marrow transplantation as being an effective treatment for patients with hematologic malignancies. What's the rationale behind it, and how is the procedure accomplished? Well, that's true. Bone marrow transplantation is most often applied to patients with hematologic malignancies. It's a potentially curative therapy when more conventional and standard therapies aren't effective. In a traditional or conventional bone marrow transplant, what is usually involved is administering very, very high doses of chemotherapy and radiation that are myeloablative. The philosophy behind a conventional bone marrow transplantation for years has been to take advantage of a dose-response effect. The more chemotherapy or the higher dose radiation we can give patients, the more tumor cells that can be killed. The intent is to eradicate any residual tumor cells. The side effect has been myeloablation, and then to replace a patient's damaged hematopoietic stem cells and their bone marrow with stem cells from an HLA-matched donor. So really trying to wipe out all of the tumor cells, and with the high doses, I imagine there are certain toxicities, as well as wiping out all the bone marrow, leaving patients kind of vulnerable for infections, I imagine. Well, exactly. Bone marrow transplantation is enormously risky, and I believe it's probably the single most risky procedure in all of medicine when done in a conventional way. Mm -hmm. We unfortunately don't have any modalities that are specific to kill cancer cells, let alone to kill bone marrow cells, and there are side effects. When you start using such high doses of chemotherapy or radiation, it is unfortunately common to have toxicity to other organs in the body. The things that we worry most about are lung damage and interstitial pneumonitis Mm. and damage to the liver, veno-occlusive disease or sinusoidal obstructive syndrome, which is the way we now refer to it. But at these doses, essentially any organ system can be involved. There is direct cardiac toxicity. There is potential renal toxicity, neurologic toxicity. And so the direct conditioning regimen toxicity just from the chemotherapy and radiation is a major cause of mortality after transplant. I would imagine also cells that turn over rapidly. I'm thinking about the GI tract might be vulnerable. Do you see some GI side effects other than liver? Exactly. Mucositis is a major and almost universal side effect with high-dose chemotherapy and radiation. And when we talk about mucositis or enteritis, it's not just mouth sores, which actually can be quite severe and debilitating, but diffuse enteritis, uncontrollable diarrhea. And in fact, this is the most common portal of entry for bacteria. And that predisposes patients to severe and life-threatening infections. So we have direct toxicities, but then also the patient's immune system is basically wiped out for a period of time. Is that correct? That is correct. There are really two other major side effects that limit the effectiveness or applicability of transplant. And one is exactly what you're referring to, and that is the procedure itself is profoundly immunosuppressive. There is a 
period of time after transplant where patients are absolutely neutropenic. We have myeloablated them. They're neutropenic before the new donor stem cells have sufficiently recovered and differentiated to make new neutrophils. But even with normal neutrophils, patients are immunosuppressed at the level of a neonate. Furthermore, we have them on immunosuppression to prevent other complications, such as graft-versus-host disease, further limiting their ability to respond to infections and making them more predisposed to opportunistic infections and difficult-to-treat problems. In addition to infections, the other major side effect that I just referred to is this phenomenon that we call graft-versus-host disease. Even though we're doing transplants with donors who are very, very well matched, unless it's an identical twin and a perfect match, there are immunologic differences almost always between a recipient, a patient, and their donor. When we do a transplant, we talk about recovery of normal blood cells. Uh But a transplant also transplants a whole new immune system. The major effector cells are primarily the donor T cells, though other immune cells are involved. Those new donor immune cells go into the patient and actually can recognize as different and foreign antigens in the host. That makes sense that these are new T cells and it might recognize the host as being foreign and attack different organs. That's correct. The major target organs, in fact, are the skin, the liver, and the tissues of the GI tract and the bowel. This reaction can be non-existent, in fact, 40 to 50% of the time. And when it does occur, it can range anything from very, very mild all the way to severe and life-threatening organ destruction. However, we have very good therapy to try and prevent it with various types of immunosuppression. And should it develop, we have other immunosuppressive drugs to try and treat it. The problem with that is that with this level of intensive immunosuppression, you again leave a patient very susceptible to all sorts of different kinds of infections, further increasing the risk of transplant. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. If the match is better, is there a lesser chance for the graft versus host, or there doesn't seem to be that correlation? There is a very good correlation. There's a significant risk when patients are completely matched, when they are HLA identical, though not identical twins, but When you attempt to do transplants with donors who are not HLA identical, who are mismatched in one or more HLA antigens, the risk of graft-versus-host disease goes up significantly, and in fact, survival will be decreased. And then the mechanism of benefit is you've wiped out the cancer cells and you have, you're replacing the immune cells, but there's also another effect that benefits the patient, isn't there? Yes, there is. So not all graft-versus-host disease is a bad thing. The same immune cells that have the ability to recognize normal tissue as foreign and to attack it essentially also have the ability to recognize cancer cells. Years of study, both in animal models and from clinical data, have really defined and proven that these T cells can also kill residual cancer cells that survive even the very high doses of chemotherapy and radiation. When that happens, we refer to that not as graft-versus-host disease, but as a graft-versus-tumor effect, or sometimes people will call it a graft-versus-leukemia effect. That can be very beneficial and, in fact, is one of the reasons that allogeneic bone marrow transplantation is curative. It's one of the major mechanisms of success. That's fascinating to me because I've not really been aware that the transplanted bone marrow has this anti-tumor effect. And is there a way to 
quantify how much of the success is due to this anti-tumor effect versus wiping out the tumor cells with the myeloablative therapy? It's difficult in many settings to actually quantify this graft versus tumor activity, but I can give you some examples. The one disease where a graft versus tumor effect is probably the most potent is in chronic myelogenous leukemia in CML. Back in the late 80s and early 1990s, we and others were doing clinical trials to try and prevent graft-versus-host disease, thinking that patients would have a better outcome. And transplants were being done with bone marrow grafts that were T-cell depleted. It was known that the T-cells cause graft-versus-host disease, graft-versus-host disease results in so much toxicity and mortality that the hope was if we can prevent GVHD, we could improve outcome for patients. T-cells can be taken out of the graft before it's transplanted, before it's infused. When you do that for patients with CML, it is very unusual they get graft-versus-host disease and their immediate toxicity is much lower. Uh But instead of having a relapse rate of about 10%, which is fairly standard from a conventional transplant, over half of those patients, about 50%, will ultimately relapse with their disease. Mm. That gives you some idea of the magnitude of the graft versus tumor effect, that the high-dose chemotherapy and radiation perhaps is only curing about half of the patients. The other half are actually cured in part because of this immunologic graft versus tumor activity. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Medical Breakthroughs from Penn Medicine on ReachMD Radio on XM160, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Lee Friedman, and joining me to discuss novel approaches to bone marrow and stem cell transplantation is Dr. David Porter, professor of medicine and director of stem cell transplantation and immunotherapy at Penn Medicine. Uh, Dr. Porter, it sounds like because of some of these severe toxicities, this might not be a good treatment for all patients. That's correct. Because of the intensity of therapy and the risk of side effects, Bone marrow transplant is generally limited to younger and certainly healthier patients. I think how you define younger has evolved over the years, but there's no doubt that the risk of transplant increases with age. A person's ability to tolerate severe infections and some of the side effects from the high-dose chemotherapy and radiation goes down significantly as they get older. By the time patients really get into their mid, if not upper 50s, the risks go up so high that transplant starts to become impractical. Mm -hmm. So there's a very large number of patients who could benefit and potentially be cured of their disease with transplant, but who are either above an upper age limit or who have comorbid disease and couldn't tolerate the intensity of the conventional therapy. Is that where your recent work is directed? It is. For several years now, we have been trying to develop uh, novel methods of bone marrow transplantation that try and take advantage of this immunologic graft-versus-tumor effect, but in the setting of minimized chemotherapy and radiation, the so-called conditioning regimen toxicity. The philosophy of this approach to transplant has been very different than the traditional transplant. Rather than trying to take advantage of the dose-response activity, trying to give more and more high-dose chemotherapy and radiation, we have done work trying to take advantage of the donor graft's ability to kill the leukemia cells and use transplant not as a method to give high-dose chemotherapy or high-dose radiation, but to really use it as a method of adoptive immunotherapy. 
the approach really, and we've been doing this for several years, but so have many other centers around the country, has been to give lower and hence safer doses of chemotherapy that really are not designed to get rid of every last cancer cell and, in fact, are not designed to be myeloablative. They are designed primarily to immunosuppress a patient. If you immunosuppress a patient, you can then do the bone marrow transplant, and that transplant graft will survive in the patient. If we didn't immunosuppress them, the bone marrow cells would be rapidly rejected. Mm-hmm. So we give what's referred to as a non-myeloablative or a reduced-intensity immunosuppressive treatment rather than myeloablative high-dose therapy. And we go ahead and do the transplant. When it's effective, the new donor graft survives. And if the new donor graft survives, the new immune system, and largely important is that the new T cells survive in the patient, in the recipient. So that's fascinating. So instead of the myeloablative therapies that may account for a lot of the toxicity of bone marrow transplant and limit its applicability, we're immunosuppressing, not myeloablating them, and relying on that effect that you talked about, the graft-versus-tumor effect, to do a lot of the work against the cancer. I guess the question would be, is that effective enough? It can be. In many cases, it appears to be effective enough understanding that this is a relatively very new procedure, but we and others have been doing this now for several years with fairly good data about outcomes. It is clearly safer. I think that that has been well established. The treatment-related mortality from the transplant procedure is markedly improved compared to a more traditional transplant. Patients, because they're so immunosuppressed, still remain at risk for infection. They still remain at risk for graft-versus-host disease. But dealing with those side effects, independent of all the toxicity of the chemotherapy and radiation, are are really much easier for a patient to deal with and a patient to survive. I very much want to thank my guest from Penn Medicine, Dr. David Porter. Dr. Porter has outlined for us the rationale behind traditional bone marrow transplantation and has also gone through the quite serious potential toxicities of this procedure. And then he has talked to us about how he and his colleagues have been using a more immunosuppressive rather than myeloablative approach that opens up this procedure to older patients, patients with other comorbidities. And although it sounds like some of the data is still a little preliminary, outcomes don't seem to be significantly compromised, but tolerability is significantly increased. Dr. Porter, thank you for being our guest this week on Medical Breakthroughs from Penn Medicine. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to Medical Breakthroughs from Penn Medicine on ReachMD XM160, the channel for medical professionals. To download this program or access ReachMD on demand, please visit us at ReachMD.com. Thank you for listening.